0: American Catholic religious sisters have had a dramatic impact on the Catholic Church. From building parochial schools to pioneering higher education for women, Catholic sisters have expanded their ministries since the Second Vatican Council's call for renewal in the 1960s. Recently, Fordham University hosted a panel discussion that examined how the sisters' ministry has changed the face of the church and what they're called to do today. Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon. And on this week's Fordham Conversations, we hear excerpts from Call and Response, How American Catholic Sisters Shaped the Church Since Vatican II. My name
1: is Jim McCartan,
2: director of the Fordham Center on Religion and Culture. And on behalf of the center and our co-sponsor, the Francis and Ann Curran Center for American Catholic Studies, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Fordham University for tonight's event. Call and response, How American Catholic Sisters Shaped the Church Since Vatican II. Now let me introduce our moderator. Christine Fehrer Hinza teaches theology at Fordham and directs the Francis and Anne Curran Center for American Catholic Studies. She is a specialist in Christian social ethics and Catholic social teaching, focusing particularly on issues related to family life, gender, and economics, as well as feminist ethics.
1: Good evening. It's a special honor and delight for me to have been asked to moderate tonight's session We gather tonight to reflect on a fascinating and still being written period in the history of our faith, the decades since the Second Vatican Council. As Dr. McCartan mentioned, during these years religious sisters in their various communities and works have been on the forefront of the work of renewal of church identity and mission that the council invited. As the Council's emphasis on the universal call to holiness, the prophetic, priestly and authoritative mission of all the faithful took hold among U.S. Catholics, persons and religious sisters have found themselves companions and partners as in our different ways we've sought to be responsive to what God is doing and requiring of us in our day. The story of U.S. religious women and a reforming Catholic church between 1965 and today has unfolded amid enormous changes, cultural shakeups, and contested new developments. Over these years, women in religious communities in this country have literally lived their lives on the front lines of issues and debates concerning gender and power in the church and in society. We're fortunate tonight to have with us a panel of speakers who have not only studied and thought deeply about, but have deeply lived and are living the drama of women's religious communities in the post-Vatican II era. Representing five different religious communities, different generations of sisters, and different professional fields and ministries, our panelists are uniquely positioned to shed light on the myriad ways that American Catholic Sisters have shaped the Church since the Council and to provide us insight on sometimes contested aspects of their current stories and future directions. We are grateful to them and we look forward to a rich evening. Our first speaker is Sister Doris godemuller who is a Religious Sister of Mercy and currently Senior Vice President for Mission and Values Integration at Catholic Heart Health Partners, a regional healthcare system serving 31 counties in Ohio and Kentucky. Good evening. My first reflection is this is
3: such an interesting topic. I am so glad to be here. It's such a great story. The best kept secret is that the changes women religious underwent began not with Vatican II, but at least a dozen years before that. In 1950, Pope Pius XII convened an international meeting of superiors general, men and women, and charged them with renewal in religious life, theological education and professional credentials for their teaching, for those teaching and doing professional work, and the elimination of outdated customs and clothing that estranged them from those they served the elimination of outdated customs and clothing, professional and preparation and education. If you heard stories about that time, it was customary for women religious anyway to enter a convent, go through nine months or a year of novitiate and begin teaching school. And then they were on the 20 year plan. It took 20 years to get a bachelor's degree going on Saturdays and uh, summers. And uh, that was no longer, by that was just no longer defensible. And so the uh, Holy Father said that, you know, we, we had to begin a, a uh, new way of doing this. However, that resonated very deeply with our, a lot of American women religious leaders. And they formed what was called the Sister Formation Movement. But it promoted uh, the, the uh, spiritual, um, and educational and professional development of women religious. And I would dare say all of us on the panel are the fruit of that. Uh, One uh, fruit of that, a very key fruit for our uh, discussion tonight, is that the sister formation movement beginning in the early 50s, created a whole generation of religious exposed to developments in theological, liturgical and biblical studies, which led up to the council. So if you can picture this now, when the council was announced in 1962, suddenly you had a generation of younger members who were eager for the message. Then the decree on the appropriate renewal of religious life in 1965, charged us with the two simultaneous processes, the continuous return to the sources of our identity, the scripture, the Bible, and the inspiration of our founders, and an adjustment of the community to the changed circ conditions of the times, the so-called Resorsma and aggiornamento. But, going into a little more detail, the Council also said that the manner of living, praying, and working, living, praying, and working, should be suitably adapted to the physical and psychological conditions of today's religious, and also to the extent required by the nature of each community, to the needs of the apostolate, the requirements of a given culture, the social and economic circumstances anywhere, but especially in missionary territories. The way in which communities are governed should also be re examined in the light of these same standards. For this reason, constitutions, directories, customs books, books of prayers and ceremonies, and similar compilations are to be suitably revised and brought into harmony with the documents of the sacred. Synod. This task will require the suppression of outmoded regulations. Can you grasp the scope of that? The scope of that. This was, this was uh, mandated to congregations with dozens and hundreds of years of history and everything, we would go back to the source and, and, and update everything. And furthermore, successful renewal and adaptation cannot be achieved unless every member of the community cooperates. So this wasn't an activity for the leaders. This was an activity for every member. Heady stuff. As we look back on all of this, I think the first thing that can't be said too often was that our change was an act of obedience to the church. Now, it was also true that our leaders understood the need for it and were preparing for it. But when people uh, suggest, as some popular writers have, that we were in a a state of defiance of church authorities, we were mandated, you heard the scope of the mandate. Secondly, the concept of experimentation was flawed from the start. Everyone was supposed to participate. There was no control group. Now in any social science experiment, you have a hypothesis, you experiment with a new group, and then you have a control group, and after the period of experimentation is over, you look at the results. Well, if after three or five or seven years of going without outside without a companion, wearing a modified habit or contemporary dress, driving a car, the results weren't quite what had been desired or anticipated. <laughs> it, it was impossible to return to the status quo ante. We had already changed. So uh, my final sentence is, women's religious life somehow inspires a temptation to nostalgia or selective memory. (laughs) But it's good to go back and hear the whole picture sometimes.
0: This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You're listening to excerpts from Call and Response, how American Catholic sisters shaped the church since Vatican II. It was a panel discussion right here at Fordham University.
1: Our next speaker is Sister Maria Simperman. She is a religious of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Maria taught for eight years at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio and was an associate professor of moral theology and social ethics, teaching at the intersection of social ethics, moral theology, and spirituality. Maria also served for nine years as a national core team member of Giving Voice, a gathering of women religious under the age of 50 across congregations in the U.S. and internationally. This is a particular lens she brings to religious life today.
2: I want to begin by saying it's such a gift to be with you tonight, to share and to have conversation about a way of life not only dear to me, but also important to the church and to the world. Context, I am in my 40s and I was born as Vatican II ended. So I am a grateful beneficiary of all the initiatives of Vatican II. I didn't see limits for women growing up. I didn't see limits in religious life. I saw women in classrooms in soup kitchens, working in law, medicine, public policy. I saw everything was possible. And interestingly, too, from high school on, I was raised in inclusive language. I saw so much possibility. A significant catalyst for my own vocation, and grounded in God, was in 1980. I was a high school student in Cleveland, Ohio at an Ursuline High School, and that was when the news came forth of the death of four American, North American churchwomen, who were martyred in El Salvador on December 2nd. I was in that high school that Dorothy Kazel had taught at, and people knew her. And from stories about her, it was her death, but actually even more her life, that made a profound impact on my life. She still serves as an image of religious life for me, engaged in the world, in the joys, in the sorrows, in love, and offering all that she could. She loved not counting the cost, and stayed among the people as long as it could be of help to them. She did not seek to die. She chose to love. And in doing so, she also suffered the same fate as thousands of campesinos in El Salvador. That was a key impact for me on what it means to be a woman religious. In my own formation, I was blessed with many inter-congregational experiences, and and that's where some of the generations start shifting, that um, it wasn't these sisters and those sisters, but we came together. And that was a way of both learning from one another and appreciating one another's charisms and our own calls. So it was very much a gift of my time. And where theology came through, uh, I just remember that one of the gifts I received in the 90s when I made my final profession was a copy of Beth Johnson's Consider Jesus, Waves of Renewal in Christology. Sisters work in theology and spirituality. First, some background, the fact that, that we can even talk about sisters' work in theology and spirituality is because women religious made such study possible when it did not exist. In a biography of Sister Madeleva Wolf, the president of Holy Cross Sister, and was who was the president of St. Mary's College in South Bend, Indiana, Gail Porter Mandel writes that, quote, in the early 1940s, women including religious women, as well as laymen, were barred from the graduate study of theology by all Catholic universities in the United States, in spite of a shortage of teachers. So in 1942, the NCEA, National Catholic Education Association, identified the shortage as one of the biggest problems facing Catholic education, and appointed Sister Manaleva to figure out some possible solutions. Every graduate school she approached refused to consider setting up a program for sisters and lay people. No alternative seemed to remain. And this is where religious women tend to come in. All options are gone, and yet they have hope and see beyond. But at the next meeting of the NCEA, Madeleva amazed herself by announcing to the group, quote, I do not know how we will do it, but this summer we will offer at St. Mary's a six weeks graduate program in theology. (laughs) And so it happened. The Sacred School of Theology was organized and started running. 18 sisters registered the first summer by the time the school closed almost 25 years later, St. Mary's had granted 76 doctoral and 35 master's degrees in theology to sisters as well as laymen and laywomen. Only after major universities in Europe and America began admitting laypeople did the school phase out its program. It was because of a program like this, and far-sighted women religious in congregational leadership, that people started getting this kind of education. And one of those people was Margaret Brennan, IHM. She earned her doctorate and then became a novice directress in 1962. And if you think about it, at that time, the novitiates were huge. So imagine someone with a doctorate in theology forming the sisters and all the way through Vatican II. And then in 1966, she was elected general superior of her community and a theologian, a theologian continued. And she talks about this in her memoir and talks about this as yet another watershed moment. In the late 1960s, as I began to attend many meetings of bishops and to interact with clerical persons in the church, I had become more and more aware of the theologic dependence of women religious on the views and expertise of clerics. In discussions on renewal, the Vatican documents, or the life of the church in general, we sisters were always reminded of our need to defer to male theologians and male teachers for the final word. Sometime in 1968, I had a conversation with Father Pierre Paré, a priest chaplain at the University of Louvain. I was remarking about our difficulties in conversations with Vatican officials in Rome. Each time we brought forward our opinions and convictions about renewal, which had come from our lived experience, we were told that we did not have the expertise to make these judgments and should leave them with the theologians, all male, of course, who were empowered to do the interpreting. Well, answered Father Paré, why don't you educate your own theologians? On returning home, the idea stayed with her. And from that moment, she brought to her council the suggestion that what would it look like if for every hundred sisters, one sister was a theologian. So they invited 10 of their sisters to do graduate studies, doctoral work in theology. And they chose all different areas of theology and then scripture. And the impact continued. They've served in the U.S., in Canada, South Africa, and Rome. There's no way to really name the contributions of women religious who are theologians. But I will say two small pieces. One is there are a number of unsung heroines uh, who spent more of their time in the classrooms and in the colleges that the sisters started, doing education who were not as well published as others. But these are the women who educated your religious education directors, your teachers, your pastoral ministers, and even more, part of the educated lady we now have among us. But of course there are also women religious theologians who have through publications and teaching Help to move us more deeply into theology and in our tradition. And that's simply the theology. The spirituality areas that may be for our discussion that are really interesting are where the women religious really moved areas of spirituality, retreats, and spiritual direction. I think there's a lot to be said there. Four just phrases about our invitations for the future one area is peace building both in the world and in the church, and that includes dialogue, collaboration. Second one is internationality. A third one is deepening community and prayer, and the fourth one is about having ever more deeply a contemplative lens as we future. We offer this, but we have to find ways to live this better, or we will simply rush from one crisis to another or recede into workaholism. Ultimately, ours is a God-seeking life. It's all of ours. And this is essential, as there is both institutional crumbling and a future emerging, all of which the God we seek and ever more deeply long for invites us to. This will allow us to use our religious imagination and offer real hope. And so I end with a quote from Vatican II, which speaks to our call as women religious and to our call as humans. It's from Gaudium Espes. The future of humanity lies in the hands of those who are strong enough to provide coming generations with reasons for living and hoping. May we live this. Last but certainly not least... We
1: will we welcome Sister Miriam Ugraitis, a Sister of Saint Joseph of Carondelet, who is a psychologist and CEO of the Southdown Institute in Toronto, dedicated to serving mental health needs of religious and clergy. She previously served as Director of Research at Southdown, as well as Director of the Institute for Religious Excuse me the Institute for Leadership of Religious Organizations and acting director of DePaul University's Center of Applied Social Research. Along with Father David Nigren, she was co-researcher for the Religious Life Futures Project and co-author of a major study published in 1992 known as the Forest Report, the Report on the Future of Religious Orders in the United States, about which you will hear more momentarily.
4: Thank you all for the invitation, uh, for your presence. And I, primarily says, I don't know what else to say. Uh, the, um, the four women before me have said it. They've, they've talked about every facet of the study that, that um, David and I worked on. And, and it's an incredible witness of um, the last, really, uh, 50 years of service and ministry to the church that we all love. Um, it's, it's an incredible... Um, story tonight, so I, I stand here saying, okay, well, let's just talk. <laughs> um, in, in the invitation, I was asked to kind of talk a little bit about the forest study looking back 20 years, and, and it doesn't seem like 20 years. And my hunch is some of you may have been involved in it, answering the survey, or um, in some works. Can I, can I ask, did anybody here do the survey? Oh, look, oh my gosh, Okay. Thank you, thank you very much for responding. We had a response rate of well over 77%, which is really good for social science research at that point in history. Um, and I'm just gonna tell one tiny little story. One um, person who was doing the survey, um, got it back incomplete with a note from his superior saying, um, Father died while doing this. <laughs> um, and and the la- but he wanted to assure us that it didn't kill him. <laughs> but the the la- the last question uh, asked was uh, essentially if I had to do it all over again, would I choose religious life? And and his response was very strongly agree. And so they used that um, as part of his uh, funeral liturgy. Uh, and so. um it's, it's kind of those stories that make the numbers um, come alive. Um, one of the, the, If I were to give the summary, we said the bottom line was for, a, for religious communities to continue to live vibrantly. The, the two things, the formula if you will, or the equation, was fidelity to founding purpose and responsive to absolute human need. And, and those were uh, two dynamics that we've uh, seen over and over. However, what we thought they were, when we first heard that or thought of it, and what we think of them today, if you were to talk about what it is to be faithful to your founding purpose, and how do you respond to absolute human need, I, I, think I, I believe our thinking has evolved. And, and as I heard um, Doris uh, talk about change, I, I was thinking of uh, how part of that evolution. And um, at Southdown, we really work a lot on change, uh, and and it's and it's exciting and, and Grace Ministry. But but for those of you who remember, remember the vitality curve, you know. And the, and the talk was if you were going to have it. Uh, when, when things started to decline, the first thing you would do was change the externals, you know, rearrange the room or something like that. And then the next thing to keep the decline from totally slipping down, um, you would change the documents, the written statements. And the, then finally, um, you, you really worked on the interchange. And, and I think that's a lot of what we've done. We've changed, ex- we started by changing externals. And then we rewrote our documents. But we're coming, I believe, to really understand what they mean. And not just in our head, but in our heart and our gut. And, and that's where much, I believe, of the pain is, and also much of the excitement and challenge in life, and I dare say new life. It's, it's in that, um, experience another um way of, of thinking about change is what you know when you get to doing that inner work uh, a man by the name of carlo Di clementi works a fair amount in addictions and theory and change um, once once talked about various stages and he talked about them as the pre-contemplation nothing to do with contemplation as we think about it but it's the pre-contemplation contemplation planning, implementation, and maintenance. Pre-contemplation, I'm not even aware that I have to change. You know, people might be talking about it out there, but it's not inside of me. The contemplation, I'll think about it. Yeah, maybe I have gotta lose about 50 pounds. I'll think about it. The next is the planning. I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna to plan to do it, And then after that comes implementation. You know, I start to watch my diet or whatever. Um, And I tell people so they can help me watch. They can watch me. Um, And then the maintenance. And of course checking on the maintenance, making sure, readdressing. We've thought for a long time, and, and I think it's true for us in religious life, that change was We've got to change, and we'll do it tomorrow. You know, we've got to change, and we implement immediately. And and oftentimes, and I think that's some of where our struggle is today. Uh, the changes that we've thought about, the changes that we've known we have to make, um, we we kind of struggle um, with in some ways the commitment that you know commitment and contemplation, thinking about planning and then moving forward. So that's just a little bit about how, when I look back on what we talked about in terms of faithfulness to founding purpose, responsive to absolute need, we're beginning to go much deeper uh, as individuals, but also as groups, as congregations to to move on that. I think the biggest place that we've done work and need to face is in the area of role clarity. I think that's where we are, I think that's where apostolic religious women are struggling, not struggling to understand what it is, not struggling to figure out what it means to be a sister, but saying, what is our role in the world and church today? Um, One of the, uh, I think it was David Fleming, who talked about the role of religious as addressing the gap between the gospel and the culture. As we're appropriating that more deeply, I think it's leading to a tad of tension. (laughs) But I think we're really moving in a a wonderful understanding of um, what our role is as religious in the church at this point in the 21st century. And and last night, as I was packing and cleaning up, I came across a wonderful little card. It's from Joan Chittister more than 10 years ago. She said, well, religious life lives on the edge of society in order to critique it, lives at the bottom of society in order to comfort it, and lives at the epicenter of society in order to challenge it. May we be faithful to that and to the church we love.
1: So much richness of questions, so little time. Uh, But I think at this point, it's best for us to just um, uh, praise God for this richness and also thank our beautiful panel.
0: This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us, George Bodarki and CityScaper next.